You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Welcome to City Lights. Uh, I'm Elaine Katzenberger, and I'm the publisher here. And I'm also the, the editor who worked on these two beautiful books with these three wonderful translators. Um, so I want to say welcome, and thanks for coming tonight. We are here. Uh, it's always very special. Uh, we have a lot of great events at City Lights, actually, and if any of you aren't already on our mailing list, you should sign up because there's always something interesting happening here. Um, it's extra special when it's something that we've published ourselves um, and when our authors can be here with us. Sylvina is not, but Sylvina is well represented by these three women who have worked very intimately with her, so I feel like Sylvina is here to some degree, whatever that means. Um, it's really wonderful to have the people who are actually responsible for the writing here, whoever they are, but especially when they're people that I personally have worked very intimately with, so um, it's, a, it's a great night for us. Um, I just wanted to say a little bit uh, to introduce the books. I know that um, the translators are going to introduce the work that they read to you, and so they'll give you context about the author and, and the work itself, and so I don't need to go into much of that. And I have a feeling a lot of you are here because you're already uh, pre-informed, so I won't dwell on it too much. But I do want to talk a little bit about the books themselves and how they came to be, because that's always a story that, uh, unless you work as a translator or know a translator or a publisher or an editor, it might be just kind of something either you don't think about or you think about it and it's entirely opaque and mysterious about how do these, who chooses this stuff, who, why does it happen, how does it happen? Um, you know, I have been publishing work in translation here at City Rights my entire career as an editor here, so that began in 1993. Uh, City Lights started out as a uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the founder of City Lights. Um, City Lights kind of wouldn't exist without translation. The founding story of City Lights has to do with uh, Ferlinghetti sending in his translations of Prevert poems to Peter Martin, who edited a magazine called City Lights. Um, that pre-existed the bookstore and was fledgling at the time. It was when Ferlinghetti had first moved to San Francisco. He's driving up Columbus Avenue from his painting studio downtown and happens to see Peter Martin putting out a little sign that says pocket books and walks over and says, hey, and, and Peter says, oh yeah, you're the guy with the Prevert poems, and then they shake hands and they say, we're going to start this bookstore. So it was translation that was the initial clue. And, um, and that's always been a part of City Lights. Lawrence's vision for this place always came from an international understanding of uh, the literary conversation. Mm -hmm. um, in the history of publishing in the United States, uh, there have been some presses that have been consistently devoted to translation. Um, in a more recent history of publishing in the United States, there have been presses that are solely devoted to translation. And in the last 20 years or so, but really maybe the last 15 or 10, 
there's been a huge flowering of small presses that specialize in translation. Um, that's unprecedented in the in the literature in the world of literature in the, in, in in English in the United States, and it's and it's um, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, so we are publishing our books into that context now, and it's a very different context than when I was first doing this kind of work in 1993. I would say, especially um, Latin American literature. So there's always been a heavy concentration on literature from European countries, and some of that's for obvious reasons that have to do with ideas about culture and what's important and that kind of Eurocentric notion. Some of it has to do with how translation gets funded and what countries actually uh, decided to put money behind their literature and pushing it out into the world as a way of promoting their own literature into the world and a knowledge of their countries. So Germany and France and that kind of, you know, those, those stipends existed for a long time. And then some other Latin American countries started to pick up on that and decide, you know, that's a good idea for us too. This is foreign relations on a certain level. Um, so that has something to do with it as well. And I think that also what has to do with it is the ways in which uh, world attention turns. And... Um, at the time that Silvina Ocampo was writing, uh, way back, not quite a century ago, but <laughs> almost now, um, Buenos Aires and South America uh, definitely were understood, probably in the same way that maybe Beirut was, or other world culture capitals, that were not necessarily just Paris or um, Berlin or any of these other places that you might think about. Um, they were playing a big role equally in the literary world. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't unusual that the writers from these countries would be friends with and in touch with and traveling partners with writers from any one of these world modernist languages at the time. But then that changed. And I think it went back to some old kind of model where North and European sort of reasserted in everyone's mind some sort of cultural hegemony and anything that had to do with South was sort of like, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there's sort of those writers that rose to the top of that, and so then that's the boom era, you know. So Silvina and that generation, that just is like, that just becomes kind of semi-forgotten history. Um, and therefore, you know, the uh, less translated things fall out of print or they never make it into translation or, or any number of things. And that's one of the things that happened with this person who actually loomed quite large at the time that she was writing. Um, the reason that this, these books are being published here now have to do with the relationships that exist in the real world between translators and editors. And so these conversations that pop up because you know each other, and then who knows which writers. And I knew about Sobino Campo because I read Spanish. And because I read Spanish, I had come across her name and some of her writing a long time ago, along with a whole bunch of other writers. Most of those people are in, uh, Liz Spector is another one, mm -hmm. but most of these people are now in translation and they were not. And it, it is really, really exciting. So it's great to be able to bring these two books out. When we got the opportunity to do two books instead of one, then we knew 
that would make some sort of a cultural phenomenon. People would stand up and pay attention that Silvino Campo was sort of, you know, being promoted in this way. And uh, and it's wonderful. It's actually it's working. She's gotten all kinds of wonderful reviews. The translations are really beautifully rendered, and that's a big part of it. Um, it's wonderful to be a part of uh, reasserting the writing of somebody who um, totally deserves it and has been kind of forgotten for a while. And so with that, I will uh, give you a tiny introduction again because I have a feeling that. These three women are known to many of you, but perhaps not all of them to all of you. So I will just introduce the translators quickly and then let them take it over. Um, Suzanne Jill Levine is the gener general editor of Penguin's Paperback Classics of Jorge Luis Borges' Poetry and Essay, a noted translator of Latin American prose and poetry, has translated so many of the really important uh, writers of Latin America, including uh, Julio Cortázar, Carlos Fuentes, José Donoso, and etc. Um, she also translated, along with Jessica, a book by Silvina Ocampo and her husband, uh, Adolfo Pio Casares, which was, it's a fabulous book. I hope <laughs> we have that here too. It's called Where There's Love, There's Hate. It's this wonderful little novella that they co-wrote together. Uh, really clever. Um, it's been made into a very a fun movie, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, they did a pretty good job oh, in Argentina. Yeah. Uh, her most, is it still your most recent book, the book with Christina? Oh, these are the most recent books yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Christina, was Christina still being recent because of all these awards? Yeah, yeah. Saying, but, yeah. So uh, there's a wonderful book called The Taiga Project by Christina Rivera Garza. Taiga Syndrome. Taiga, oh, right, Taiga Syndrome. Taiga Syndrome. Um, <laughs> Published by the Dorothy Project, that's why I said that. Uh, it's a great book. Um, we have that here somewhere if we don't have it up here on the table. Um, Jessica Powell has published dozens of translations of literary works, also by a wide variety of Latin American writers. Um, she received an NEA translation grant for to support her translation of Antonio Benitez Rojo's novel, Woman in Battle Dress, which I published here at City Lights. Uh, back in 2015, um, which was a finalist for the Penn Center USA Literary Award for Translation. Um, her translation of Wicked Weeds by Pedro Padilla was named a finalist for the Best Translated Book Award in 2017. Uh, Jessica's worked on, now this is the third book we worked on together? Yeah. yeah. So in between Benitez Rojo and this book, we published a a uh, new uh, translation of a never-before-translated uh, first book of Pablo, no, first third, book. third book of Pablo Neruda, but a very early book. Um, it's a beautiful book. Um, and Kitty Latif John is a PhD candidate at the University of California, Santa Barbara, in comparative literature with a doctoral emphasis in translation studies, and she is working on a thesis about Sylvina and Clarice Lispector, which is this another wonderful writer that if you like Sylvina, you'd love her too. Um, this is her first published book, and I feel very, very happy. It's very exciting to be able to to work on something like that. that it really, uh, for a translator, it's a big deal to, to get your work published. So um, 
this has been a collaborative work among the three of us all the way through, along with Stacy Lewis, who is here. She's our marketing and publicity director, and she's yeah. done a wonderful job of this. And it's been it's been really interesting having a big group involved. The amount of emails when there's two <laughs> <laughs> I say this, I say this, yeah. I say this. It's pretty great, though. It's been a wonderful collaboration, and I, I think that we've all enjoyed it quite a lot. And with that, I turn it over to them. Thank you. Well, um, I'm very, we're all very happy to be here, and uh, uh, very especially myself, since Elaine and I have been talking about doing a book together for the last, what, two decades almost. So, <laughs> I'm, so I'm so glad it's, these projects have finally uh, flowered. And um, uh, uh, Sylvina, um, uh, you know, how we discovered these books actually is also collaborative. Uh, I was, um, probably about 10 years ago, I met the, the, uh, the literary agent, the literary of the state, uh, and, uh, and he, and he told me about the existence of uh, the promise, La Promesa, and uh, and I was just very excited about this. So we we went and got this book, and then uh, Katie was down in Argentina doing research for the dissertation which I'm directing with her, and uh, she basically um, uh, fell in love with Viaje uh, Olvidado, right? And uh, so we said, well, gee, why don't we just do two books instead of just one? And, uh, and as Jessica and I had already had a good experience um, collaborating on a very funny yeah. book by the husband and wife, uh, um, uh, which also gave, uh, gave some you know, experience working with Sylvina, who's, um, you know, they're both very quirky writers, but she definitely wins them on the quirk side. So, uh, <laughs> and... Um, and, and what's fascinating about these two works, of course, which uh, uh, these, these guys will tell you, is that Viaje uh, Obiado is the first book of, uh, which she published in 1937. Uh, and uh, it actually is a very unusual book of hers. It's probably a more radical, the most radical of her stories in many ways. And uh, in that sense, it's very exciting for you as readers to have this, um, this dimension of Silvino Campo. Um, uh, she has there's a there is a other uh, editions that already, ex already exist uh, mainly the New York uh, Review Books Clad Modern Classics they they've done her the the central part of her work uh, but this this definitely gives uh, shows you where that's coming from and gives you a, a broader uh, spectrum I and mean, she was basically a surrealist and she was um, you know she studied actually she studied art uh, visual art when she was very young and with the Kiriko right and. Katie recently was looking at the Curico paintings mm -hmm. and said, wow, you know. It's, uh, really see how it informs the way that the stories unfold. We got to do an event in New York, so there's a the Curico painting in, uh, at the MoMA um, that it's called The Anxious Journey, um, and of course, Perfect. Forgotten Journey, um, and <laughs> yeah. the way that it unfolds, and you'll see when we read um, some of the excerpts, is uh, the painting is a, a, a train journey, and it starts very straightforward, um, and then as the, as the we move across the canvas it becomes darker and more shadowy and less certain what's uh, what's unfolding what's taking place mm -hmm. and um, that mirrors Sylvina's stories um, especially especially in a forgotten journey right so we have we begin at the beginning and then we have the 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 last book that she wrote and we were just discussing just here with, with Elaine how really uh, this book has really caught on with the critics uh, mm -hmm. and we were just really said 
it's such a strange book, you know, <laughs> half the time you don't know what the heck is going on, but it is, a, you know, it's a narrative, but, <laughs> and, um, and uh, it was a book that um, she started writing in the, in the 70s, and, um, and, and it really, you know, it, it, but she didn't, I mean, it was ultimately unfinished because she died of dementia, actually, early in the 90s, and it is a book that reflects the battle between the consciousness and the unconscious between the imagination and the mind, and with especially memories and imagination. You know, are, are they are they imagined or are they memories? You know, and this book really delves into that in a very deep and a very original way. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's 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 really interesting that I got that attention. So, I, how we're going to do the reading? We'll start off with uh, the forgotten journey, a couple of stories, and uh, again, I. Please forgive me. Uh, you can't look at my beautiful eyes behind a very nice pair of glasses, which I sat on. So I'll have to look like a beat poet here, you know, <laughs> in a very somber way. But, but, but you know, you'll, you'll put up with that, I hope. <laughs> so. All right. Um, so I'm going to read the first story. Um, we, we actually calculated it. These books were published um, because Forgotten Journey is Sylvina's first book, um, and The Promise was um, published posthumously. Um, these books were actually published about 75 years apart, um, but there are some really interesting resonances. They're the bookends of her career, and um, in some ways with The Promise, she's coming full circle and returning to some of the themes, that, uh, the classic themes in, in Forgotten Journey, the unreliability of memory. Um, and I am part fell in love with Forgotten Journey because it is especially interested in telling the stories of young girls um, and the, the complexities of their friendships and family lives um, and especially their, their traumas. Um, and so the story that I'm going to read is called um, The Lost Passport. Um, and in uh, the first paragraph, there are a series of ellipses. Um, so I'll pause uh, to indicate those moments of, of silence. Can everybody hear well enough? Mm -hmm. Oh, in the, in would you back. appreciate a microphone? Because if you don't need it, Katie he has a very enough. gentle voice, but she'll 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 blast. It <laughs> is, the, is the microphone better, worse, without it? That's it. Um, I, mean, I can hold it if you want. Oh. <laughs> sunglasses. Okay, yeah, sunglasses like. and microphone. Pretty wild and crazy gal here. <laughs> are you sure, Jill? Absolutely, no problem. It's good exercise for my arm. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Isometric. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. I'll do the same for you. Okay. <laughs> the Lost Passport. I certify that Miss Claude Vildrock, single, whose profession is, who can read and write, whose photograph, write thumbprint, and signature appear on the reverse side of this document, born April 15, 1922, in the town of, in the federal capital of Buenos Aires, the Argentine Republic, measures four feet, six inches, and has white skin, blonde hair, a straight nose, medium-sized mouth, and medium-sized ears. Looking at the passport, Claude traced the contours of her face with both hands, thinking, I must not lose this passport. I am Claude Vildrock, and I am 14 years old. I must not forget who I am. If I lose this passport, then no one will know who I am, including me. I must not lose this passport. If I do lose it, I will have to stay on this boat forever until the years wear it down and ready it for shipwreck. Old ships are sure to sink at some point, so I'll be forced to die by drowning, my hair loose and wet, with the photograph in with my photograph in the newspapers as the girl who lost her passport. I have to make it to Liverpool, where my aunt who wears her hat high on the top of her head is waiting for me. 
My Aunt Mabel has a big house with five dogs, three Great Danes, and two Greyhounds. A photograph of a white Greyhound arrived with one of Mabel's brief letters. This is my beautiful lightning, a difficult name for a dog, who you have to call many times before he responds. My Aunt Mabel has a flower garden, garden and owns a textile mill. I don't want to arrive in Liverpool too soon, though, because the days on board are all vacation days, and I want to spend many days running around freely on deck, alone, 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 without anyone looking after me. Someone asked me if I was sad, because last night I was drowsily resting my hands over my eyes. No, I wasn't sad. My father left me in the care of, of the chief steward in a family with a strange name that I keep forgetting. The day the boat was leaving, the bells were ringing from on high, and the scent of flesh, fresh flowers filled the dining room. The many embraces pushed my hat so far down that all I could see were feet dancing the steps of a goodbye. My father removed my hat so he could see my eyes, and only then could I see just how many pairs of eyes were surrounding me, crying. I understood that this was a moment in life when you had to cry. I rubbed my eyes and kept my handkerchief in my hand as a symbol of tears until everyone had said goodbye. When they had given me the last hug, bells rang that sounded like the ice cream cart on the street. A loud siren made the boat shake as if it were going to break three times, and afterward the silence of the water was suffused with the lights in the three chimes of the English clock tower. Buenos Aires was already far away. That's how travel is, thought Claude Vildrock, so different than what you imagined. Sitting on the bed in her cabin, she was reading her passport like a prayer book. A week had already passed since she had boarded the transatlantic ship called the Transvaal, brand new with its stars and banners. Before embarking, she and her mother had visited the boat, chosen her cabin, and run around searching for the corresponding lifeboat in case of a shipwreck. Terror gave Claude the face she is making in her passport, her eyes intensely widening, filling with the waves of storms that sink ships. Her mother had laughed, which to Claude seemed like a deadly omen. She remembered they had eaten lunch that day at a restaurant called La Sonambula. On each plate was a little girl wearing her hair down with arms extended, sleepwalking across the bridge. That sleepwalker was actually a woman emerging from a shipwreck who lost her passport when she was 14 years old, along with her home and family. She looked out the porthole. The sea was an inky navy blue, and the boat was softly creaking from side to side. How incredibly different the sea was when you were at the beach swimming in it than when you were aboard a ship looking down at it, hard and impenetrable as a marble tabletop streaked with green. Claude had wet hair after a swim in the pool that lasted more than two hours. Elvia had scolded her. Who was Elvia? She didn't know her last name or anything about her mother and father, yet Elvia was the person she followed around the ship all day. She was the person Claude would give her life best to the day of the shipwreck. She cherished a piece of ribbon Elvia had used to tie her hair the day the ship crossed the boundary line. The dining room was lit up that night and the circus music had turned sentimental. Even the tables were dressed up, and the cookies were a sea green color, decorated with wide butterflies and racehorses and ballerinas and hunters. But Elvia wasn't in a ball gown. She wore, she wore a dress that screamed loneliness in the shining night, 
The five bottles of perfume she used on herself made a kind of garden around her, which she kept locked. Who was Elvia? A guaranga, some would say. A streetwalker or working girl, an old man said, covering his mouth as if coughing when he saw Claude's loose hair and scraped knees. A working girl should have worn a worker's black suit with big patches, with worn, with worn down shoes from walking through life. That's how Claude saw streetwalkers or working girls in her mind's eye, with unpainted lips and large sacks on their backs like day laborers trudging from ranch to ranch. Claude recalled a morning when, running around playing deck tennis, she had fallen. Elvia had swept her up like a mother would and bandaged her hurt knee with a thin handkerchief. After, when she was by herself, she saw a name stitched onto the corner of the handkerchief. Elvia. That's how she met Elvia. That was how she met Elvia. She tilted her head against the cool, refreshing softness of her pillow. Pillows were white seashells through which you could hear the sound of the sea at night. You didn't even need to be aboard a ship. What she liked most about life on board were the breakfasts in the morning, the circus music, the fear of shipwrecks, and Elvia. But suddenly, from the great depths of the sea, a round fish with scalloped fins and a long bill about two feet long flew through the air. First, it began to snap at the peonies in a painting and then the light bulbs. The room went dark, wrapped in mesh netting from the sea. Anxiety took hold of Claude, anxiety at having missed the spectacle of the shipwreck. How long had the ship already been sinking? And suddenly, with the shattering of the light bulb, the flame rose imperceptibly, began to grow and spread across the floor, engulfing the chairs. The whole ship was going to burn this way. Fire, fire. All of the cabin doors opened noisily. Claude took off running, repeating the number of lifeboat 55 like a litany. She ran up the stairs. All the boats were full of people in their pajamas. All the passengers were there, those who ate in the big dining room and those who ate in the small dining room. The waiters and the two hairdressers were there, along with the officers and sailors, the musicians, the cooks, and the maids. Everyone was there, everyone except Elvia. Elvia was walking in the distance, across the bridge, but she never arrived. Elvia, transformed into the sleepwalker on the plate, never arrived. Claude was running after her with a life jacket in her arms. The ship would sink forever, carrying her name, an irreplaceable face, to the bottom of the sea. As, uh, as you were reading, I was thinking of uh, what Slovenia once said, but for her, the short story is music. That's, and, and I think that's the way she composes it. She was also a poet, uh, and I think that uh, you know the short story really is uh, for her a musical form. Um, so it's um, interesting. I'm going to uh, read a slightly shorter story so that you don't um, you know get too antsy in your seats there. Um, and it's called A Strange Visit. Before she ate her lunch. Oh, I don't before she ate her lunch much at much better. Oh, yeah, oh, really? Okay. I thought I had a booming voice. Okay. Before she ate her no, <laughs> Before she ate her lunch at a small table in the room adjoining the dining room. And now she was allowed to have lunch at the big table. During the conversations, Leonore's eyes wandered to the windows, searching for a patch of clear blue in the sky, in a sky that had been covered entirely by clouds. It was going to rain and she'd be waiting for this day for some time because they had promised to take her on a visit to a house in the outskirts where they had taken her only once before. A very tall man lived there, as if isolated from the world by his height. He was a friend of Leonore's father and lived with his daughter. 
two, house, two housemaids, and a gardener in a little house that had a spiral staircase. In the garden was a miniature fountain with two entwined tritons that spewed water from a spout, a palm tree flattened against the house next door, and four rose bushes in double rows on either side of the path. Elena had jet black hair, but her face was so pale, so pale it looked almost erased. All that remained was the white bow in her hair and a dress with five pleats that caught Leonor's eye. They explored the house with all its nooks and crannies. They went up to the roof where you could see the lives of the neighboring houses and the clothing hung out to dry. They hid under the staircase and grew bored since no one came looking for them. They peered in the window of the downstairs study where two men were talking, two men with the severe faces of their fathers, two gentlemen stifling in their serious stiff collars and the smell of cigars. Leonore, holding back her laughter, pressed her nose against the cold window. Her eyes moved across the landscape through a white curtain and past the statue of Diana the Huntress to see as far as her father, who sat on a brown leather sofa. Leonore watched as he removed from his pocket the wide handkerchief he used to pat his forehead dry on very hot days. But it was cold in that room. Her father had not taken off his overcoat, but with the same gesture of drying his forehead on hot days, he wiped his face with the handkerchief up to the level of his eyes, where he kept it like someone crying. The sound of a sewing machine took over the house, making it a circle of silence, and one could barely hear the whimper that tears must make in order to burst through closed eyes. Elena's father stood up and closed the blinds. After a while, the voices grew as loud as before. Elena took the hand of Leonore, who was afraid, and they walked as far as the playroom as if they'd been in order to play. But they didn't play. Elena gave her a little medallion that she dropped on the floor three times while taking it out of its box. They said goodbye without looking at each other, with a kiss that sought cheek next to cheek, a kiss in the air. On the car ride home, her father scolded her twice, and Leonore no longer believed that he had been crying. She saw his rough, wrinkled forehead out of the corner of her eye, and she couldn't reconcile the two images, one seen through the distant landscape of the curtain, the other so close in a remote region where he, his bad mood took him, sitting in the driver's seat. Leonore thought of Elena. The table was filled with laughter during dessert. The sky grew darker and darker, and a thin rain like powdered sugar was falling. Leonore saw her father shake his head, and knowing that they would not go to Elena's house that evening, she felt a vast ocean, like the one they taught her about on maps separating her from the face she wanted to reach as it faded before her. Elena's. Thank you. I don't know, there's too many things, sunglasses, these water, water, microphone, cables, books. Do you want to? Sure, yeah. Um, so we'll move on to The Promise. Um, as Jill and, and Katie mentioned, uh, Forgotten Journey was Sylvina's first book, The Promise. Or I should use it. I should use it. Okay. Okay. Wow, there's one. Yeah, sure. The book, the book, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Three Stooges. So, okay, okay. I, 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 okay. Maybe when I read the Okay. But in the promise is her, her final work, um, and it was published uh, after her death, and she worked on it over the course of about 25 years, and as Jill mentioned, never really definitively finished it. She continued to add to it, to change, to put a part in, to take another part out. Um, and so, you know, what the, this book is represents sort of the state that the manuscript was in uh, when she died. And the last pages of this book really represent the very final pages that Sabrina Ocampo ever wrote. And while most of the, the book was typed up, those final pages never were. And so the, those last pages were turned in on these you know, loose sheets with her scrawling hand. And so it's really a very special book um, in, in that way as well. And um, the plot, such as it is, of this book is that a woman has fallen off of a ship while uh, tra traveling to visit relatives in On the other Cape side. Town. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> while she's bobbing in the ocean, waiting, hoping to be rescued, she makes a promise that if she's saved, she will write a book that tells the story of her life. And so as she's out there um, braving the elements, she is starting to compile what she calls a dictionary of memories. And so what the book really is is um, a collection of vignettes that are people and stories and places from her life. And they're not in any particular order. Some of them um, are come together and have some overlap. Some of them don't at all. Um, so I think what we're going to do is read, um, alternate reading a few of the vignettes to give you a sense of them. And then I will end with reading just a short bit from um, the end of the book. Okay, so I'll begin at, at sort of the beginning. Uh, this is uh, this is because the character, okay, the character, well, whatever. The character begins uh, um, by explaining the the book she's writing, and she really thinks that it's you know it's uh, she, it's going to be an awful book. But you know, as you say, she promises to write it. She promises herself to write it. So um, okay, so uh, uh, then the the, the an anecdotes or the vignettes start to come out. So she says here to get that going. I will try to reconstruct in these pages the order or disorder that I constructed with such difficulty in my mind from the moment in which I glimpsed in the water as if through a glass window a sea turtle resembling the tailor Aldo Bindo, which made me recall through a whimsical association of ideas Marina Dongi behind the window of a fruit store who, like him, had a beauty mark on her left cheek. I began to enumerate and to describe uh, people. Marina Dongi. Uh, Marina Dongi, the fruit seller, was the first to appear involuntarily before me in my memory. Blonde, fair-skinned, and jittery, she would come to the door of the fruit shop whenever I was passing by with my brother to wink at him. Her breasts were like large fruits overflowing her décolleté, and my brother would pause to look at her, but what am I saying? Not at her, but at her breasts and not at the navel oranges, which were very expensive. Miss Marina, how much are the oranges, my brother would ask. The price is right here, she'd say, indicating the label with a plump hand, and picking up an orange, she'd display it with a caress, and an indecent smile certainly meant to provoke my brother, who's a handsome lout. 
Beneath her blue skirt, you could make out the mark on her thighs where her girdle squeezed too tightly. The skin on her bare legs was very smooth and white, turning to a splotchy red damask down near her shoes, which were always black with spiked heels. Miss Marina, give me half a dozen oranges. Why oranges, when they're our least favorite fruit, I protest, feeling the sting of jealousy that pitiful Marina provoked in me. And here in italics, the humiliation of jealousy is not being able to choose the object that arouses it. My brother Mingo would approach the counter without listening to me, and there, a vein protruding on his forehead that appeared only when he was worked up, He'd corner her against the crates while she was tallying the total on the piece of paper she then used to wrap the oranges, taking advantage of the, the occasion to fill her up. It was a fruit relationship, <laughs> perhaps symbolizing sex. But I'm getting away from the task I've set on myself, that is, to describe people and not situations or relationships. I've forgotten my brother's face. I can't even remember the color of his eyes, striped blue and green like last marbles. Sometimes too much love makes it difficult to remember. But who did I love? <laughs> and the next one is Aldo Bingo. Aldo Bingo. <laughs> Aldo Bingo was short, fat, and pale, and spent his Sundays horseback riding. His glasses shone on his face like a shop window. He had two tufts of hair on his elongated head, one curly and blonde and the other straight and white. He was ageless. With a measuring tape draped like a shawl around his shoulders, he would run out of the back of the shop when told I was waiting for him. I'd already have put on the tailored suit, and kneeling at my feet, he'd look at me in the mirror, covered in pins. Often he'd take my measurements all over again as if he didn't already know them. With a pencil that was down to the size of a fingernail, he noted the measurements on a piece of brown wrapping paper he always had at the ready on some chair. As he took my chest measurements, he would touch with satisfaction certain protuberances on the lapel that were both expertly and indecently placed, such details being pertinent to his profession. When he measured my hips, he'd impatiently loop the tape measure around them and then let it fall as if disappointed, <laughs> releasing one end and catching it with the other hand and then wind the tape around his neck again. His wife, beside the mirror, her soft white face like a shapeless loaf of bread, passed him the pins and chalk. Sometimes she'd be taking a seam apart with enormous scissors so that he, like a master chef with a ball of dough, could skillfully take up the pieces of cloth and pin them back together to adjust a pleat without actually improving it. <laughs> he would furrow his brow, and when he had a cold, he sneezed with a sound that was contagious, even over the telephone. His hands seemed to prefer placing sleeves, lapels, and buttons on the bust of a jacket, anything near the breasts of his clients, provided they weren't too elderly. He'd wheeze, he'd pant, the hem tormented him. Just applying some lines with chalk was not enough to release him from his responsibility. He used the tape to measure the hem all the way down to the floor. The shoes he wore always creaked, it never occurred to me that he had feet with toenails or with toes stuck inside those impenetrable shoes. One day, I ran into him on the beach and didn't recognize him from a distance. But when he adjusted his wife's beach wrap about her shoulders, I shouted, there's Aldo Bindo, and ran over to greet him. <laughs> Smeared with suntan oil, his face shone with happiness. But where was his measuring tape? 
how he could do nothing without his measuring tape. A few minutes later, as he spoke admiringly of Mrs. Serundak, I saw that he was using his big toe to sketch a measuring tape in the sand. <laughs> in those days, I fell in love with the sea as though it were a person. At vacation's end, before returning to Buenos Aires, I would kneel down, crying, to bid it farewell. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do one more. This is a short, very short one, which is sort of in the middle of the book. Lily and Lillian. Lily and Lillian were always together. Everyone thought they were sisters because they wore the same color. Lily was blonde and Lillian dark-haired, but sometimes Lillian dyed her hair blonde and looked even more Lily, more like Lily. People who love each other end up seeming identical, saying the same words, moving their hands with the same gestures, and biting their lips in the same way. At the age of 20, they fell in love, or believed they fell in love, with the same man. One would see the boy in the morning and the other in the afternoon. He thought he was deceiving them both, but he wasn't deceiving anyone. The two of them were deceiving him. Because instead of kissing him, they were kissing each other. Instead of adoring him, they adored one another. How green the sea was, how green and how blue. I would like to swim for hours and hours, but aren't I in the sea now? <laughs> This one's called Gabriela. Just like that time when I was sick and after being in bed for 40 days, I missed my bed. Now I miss the sea. Ah, the sea, the sea full of masculine urgency. Whose line is that? Gabriela, oh, how beautiful she was. Her eyes were the color of the sea. In a mosaic inside the Basilica of San Apollinaris in Ravenna, the archangel Gabriel had big, astonished eyes, gently curling hair parted down the middle, a small and slender nose, a well-defined mouth, with the corner of the lips turning downward on the right side, a mild expression, and a saintly halo over a rounded and not very long oval face, a white tunic, and two large wings. Poor Irene had clipped the photograph of that mosaic from a magazine, first to jot down an address on the other side of the page, then, because she liked it, she kept it under glass for eight years in her single room. She used to say that she looked at that image absent-mindedly many times during her pregnancy, never thinking that her daughter would look so much like him. She was frequently surprised that Gabriella wasn't a boy, didn't have wings or a strange frock like that one in the image. It became her habit to call her Gabrielle, to shorten the name a bit, and because she liked saying Gabrielle better than Gabriella. She recalled the years of her own childhood in Spain, so different from Gabriel's. That she'd been born in Spain seemed like a dream to her. She wasn't aware of the feeling of neglect that she sometimes inflicted on her daughter and believed that she herself had been the most neglected girl in the world. She was three or four years old when her mother remarried to a man who didn't want to endure the presence of someone else's children. They lived in Hinsleilimia, a poor and isolated village. In less than nine months, her mother abandoned Irene and her sister, who was older. They begged in the street. They were given shelter in the attic of a brothel and received the leftover food at the end of each day. It was some time later when she found out about that these women were prostitutes that she appreciated the kindness that they had shown her and her sister. She vividly remembered a particular woman who would always step out on the balcony to take the fresh air, even in winter when snow was falling. She held Irene in her arms when she cried, like a mother would. 
When Irene had to leave that house because her repentant stepfather had sent for them, she cried for that woman as she'd never cried for anyone. The time she spent in her stepfather's house before sailing for Argentina was brief. One day, the most memorable, her drunken stepfather tied a rope around her waist and swung her from the first floor balcony until a crowd of villagers gathered, none of them daring to say a thing for fear that the man would drop her. Entertained by the game, she hadn't realized the danger she'd been in. Everything else was erased from her memory and came back as memories of baby teeth, the first day of school, Buenos Aires, the different people, the flat landscape, the river everywhere, the difficulties of life and the home of the aunt who had taken her in, the changes of childhood, her clothing, clothing becoming too small, life's many lessons, adolescence, coming of age. Upon discovering love, she believed in its fleeting salvation. News of the death of her mother, a death that was never explained, who had lain for 12 hours in the snowy woods and by some miracle had not been devoured by wolves, tormented her. As if that weren't enough, some time later, her husband abandoned her to run off with another woman. And then there was Gabriel, 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 and Leandro, but Gabriel most of all. I glimpsed a flash of lightning in the sky, then another, and yet another. If I were brave, how I would have loved to see a storm let loose. I closed my eyes. It rained a little. I opened my eyes again. The clouds were going away. Why won't they take me with them? Well, um, we can end it there. It was a very small bit from the, the end. What do you guys how, want? How are it's you all gorgeous. It's free. And I feel like um, these last pages are particularly poignant. First, as I said, because they were the final pages she ever wrote. And secondly, because as Jill mentioned, she was struggling with dementia in the final years of her life. And so this book is in a lot of ways a meditation on memory and also on storytelling. And these final pages I just find, I think, are really poignant when you read them through that lens. <clears throat> so she's in the ocean, as we know, still. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> the water is cold, and our Aucaria tree occupies my thoughts. Why, instead of people, do I only remember trees, and some animal or other, or a black dog that used to follow me? Now his eyes follow me, those loyal, feverish eyes. His name is Ifigenio. He's being trained, he wears a training collar. I command him to bark, and he barks, to bite, and he bites. To lie down, he lies down. To leap, he leaps. To die, he dies. He does not like the ocean. Salt erases sense, stings the tongue. Another tree memory, a chinaberry tree with purple flowers like perfumed daisies. The largest trees cover the horizon. Am I dying? If everything I'm seeing disappears, will I disappear too? and the animals, and the water, and the fear, and the eyes, and the murmuring of the waves, and the wind, and this unwritten manuscript. I'm going to die soon. If I die before I finish what I'm writing, no one will remember me, not even the person I loved most in the world. Does this person exist? <laughs> I believe he exists. He will never abandon me, and he will follow me like a divine shadow that I'll look for by my side, because everything that one looks for appear, appears suddenly in the most unexpected way. 
I believe that love is a shared thing that never abandons us and that gratitude will exist as long as humankind exists. Life teaches us to be grateful in one way or another. Within the greatest ingratitude, gratitude lies hidden. I do not believe in the horrible guises of human beings, in bad people, in unjust people. There are moments when a perfect light illuminates them and they prefer to die at the feet of innocence or of intelligence. Either one of the two will be our salvation, even if no one believes this is so. In the seawater, I have drunk the beauty of the universe. All the animals gathered around me. They did not abandon me, except to join the plants in a perfect union, weaving love's last exhalations into unfathomable concerts. The crickets were the first to arrive. <laughs> they sang with such insistence that I thought my eardrums would burst. <laughs> but there are no crickets or fireflies at the bottom of the sea. Why did these miracles occur? Something in the world encouraged me to bring about miracles. I do not understand it. I only understand and feel fulfilled by the peace that it brings me. I scarcely feel the beating of my heart. Do I really have a heart? Or did I lose it in the seawater? Is my heart something invisible that will never be touched by anyone? That will not bear witness to my death? Who will answer my question? Who is there with a voice and wisdom to respond? It's better to cry when one is sad, but the seawater is salty like our tears. It would be better not to cry. It's enough for the ocean to mix its tears in with the waves and to carry us from place to place in the world. So if there are questions, we'd love to entertain you or entertain you with our answer. Vice versa. Vice versa. Yes. How long have you been doing this? How long have you been this, working? This project? Just, just, uh, just in your lives. Our lives? Our lives. Our lives. <laughs> your whole life. Okay. Well, well this, <laughs> this life is a little longer, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but these are young. These are brilliant younger people uh, <laughs> but we this this is our first first project together all three of us oh. and uh, I mean uh, I've been translating since well age 22 or 3 but that's a long time ago and I've done many different translations sometimes in collaboration actually I began translating collaborating with the writers themselves when I uh, Free Trap Tigers with Cover Infante and Manuel Puig uh, Betrayed by Rita Hayworth um, and you know, I've had a you know, I've tried myriad ways to do translations, and you know, um, I mean, you're always collaborating anyway. You're collaborating with the writer, you know. And uh, I remember actually, I was doing a novel of Yoyka Sars, which which I found hilarious, but I don't know how many people, other people did. But uh, every 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 page just cracked me up, and I I was spending my my summer before I began teaching, which I was not looking forward to, uh, and uh, and so, you know, Bioy was my salvation. I would, I would sort of you know, go to this book and, you know, he'd, something silly would happen and I would just, you know, be laughing and talking to the book. But, uh, but I think it's really wonderful. It's a wonderful experience. It's a very enriching experience to work with others and uh, you get different perspectives and, um, you know, uh, and it depends. I mean, sometimes there are collaborations between uh, a, a poet and an informant. We know we know of many of those. 
uh, or you know you collaborate with somebody because the language is difficult that happens to, for, to, for you in many cases but in this case it's really just you know we love the writer and we wanted to share this experience so, yeah. and I, I discovered translation probably 20 years ago in a seminar um, that Jill was teaching when I, when I was a graduate student and I took the course and it was one of those you know like epiphany moments where it was like this is what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, and it was really, um, yeah. you know, it was really a wonderful thing, and then wonderful to have a mentor to, you know, who had had all of this amazing, yeah. you know, experience with these, you yeah. know, writers that, you know, were just yeah. so yeah. incredible, and, you know, so that was really how I, I got started um, with it, right, yeah. I got my start translating here in San Francisco um, in college, um, and I had a similar light bulb moment, um, and then went to grad school um, specifically to work with Jill, um, and took the same translation seminar. Um, but it's uh, it's such a wonderful thing to be presenting here at City Lights um, because um, San Francisco is so important to my my history of translation, and there are a few faces in the audience that attest to that and have been there throughout. And what's wonderful about this is that you know this is really um, our getting together is 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 a very positive thing that happened at, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, where you know for many years I've been trying to start a, uh, some sort of translation program, and so uh, and uh, for me that's been the most ex- one of the most exciting parts of being a teacher is just finding brilliant young translators and helping them make their way. Um, so uh, you know. And that is, of course, already a collaborative, and the class itself is a, is a collaboration. It's I can't see your face, though. Uh, now I see your face. Very nice face. It's for a glass darkly, much like the character who's under the water. <laughs> Other thoughts? Very sweet. Mm-hmm. I said that's very sweet. Likewise, thank you. <laughs> Yes. Um, the, the plot of uh, the promise, it reminded me a little bit of that Borges story, The Secret Miracle. Uh-huh. Do you think she would have been thinking about it? Just well, you know, Borges, uh, Borges, Bjorgis, and Sylvina were like one, you know, and they were part of a, I mean, uh, we, we've often made the comparison with the Bloomsbury group, you know, that it was, it was in Argentina, there was a very rich cultural uh, atmosphere, and, and these, uh, uh, Borges, of course, was was sort of the heart of this, of this, but but there are wonderful writers that he was working with, and and, and their sense of writing was very collaborative. Uh, I mean, they did you know journals together, translations together, and uh, and yes, uh, they they were talking about plots constantly. So very often you'll read a story by any one of them, and it will remind you of the other. And I think in this case, absolutely, there are stories here that would definitely remind me of, of, of Borges of conversations. And one story here is the enmity of things. Okay. I, th- I think of that as, as a little bit that reminds me of the sewer, the South, because it's a young man who goes from the city to the to the you know to the country and and has sort of a very intense experience. So it's um, you know quite starts hard. to suspect that all of the everyday. Um, items in his life, a sweater, a tie, are conspiring against him. Yeah. <laughs> but put on the wrong cardigan, uh, that something terrible could happen. But right. if you take it off, it's like being set free. That's right, exactly. Uh, so lots of interesting clothing items, That's right. everyday items uh, that populate Sylvina's stories. Yeah. Interesting Which way. is interesting to bring up because in some ways, uh, Sylvina has, she has a, 
uh, a very realistic. In other words, she has a, a she's she seems very fantastic, but it's actually very real. It's actually very every real, detail yeah. is very real, and yeah. it's just the way she looks at it in a sort of a hyper, you know, a hyper real or hyper vigilant way. You know, <laughs> haven't we all had that experience of putting the wrong thing on? Yeah. And feeling like it your day. <laughs> I think too, though. I mean, while while certainly they were influencing one another, Selena has a very unique voice yeah. that is really distinctive. And actually, Borg has said, she doesn't have influences, she influences herself. <laughs> so she appears to just influence, and it really, I think, was also part of why, when she was writing, it was, her work didn't get as much attention, because it wasn't so easy to say, oh, it's like this, or it's like that. It was really its own thing. Um, and it's part of what makes it so, so extraordinary. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, she oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Do, you guys, do you guys have heard how she talks in person? I mean, the way she talks. What she sounded like oh, when yeah. she spoke? Just Jill, 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 Jill's Jill's an impression. With ice cubes clinking in a whiskey glass. Bangles, jewelry, <laughs> yeah, always dark, dark glasses. Yeah. Oh, dark glasses. This is, they all have a. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm doing your. I'm doing Sylvina for you. Yeah. <laughs> she actually was rare, rarely photographed without um, her eyes covered or her right. face covered right. because she, she did a lot of yeah. in the covers of the book. <laughs> she was. She preferred. Be in, in the she, she, she was a surreal object herself, in some way, or should I say, subject. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think she was influenced by Kafka? Oh yeah, I mean they were all influenced by Kafka. <laughs> Who wasn't? I mean, you know, we were influenced <laughs> by Kafka. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. No, I mean, obviously there's a Kafka element there, but she started writing very early, you know, and then probably she was. Maybe discovered Kafka that around that time, uh, you know. So uh, Kafka seems a little. Uh, some of the soldier novels, it seems more uh, societal. Like she seems so personal. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Although, although it's it, yeah, but although in a way, I mean, she's. I mean, you know, she, in a way, you know, we hate to say, well, a woman writer has certain topics and things like mm -hmm. that. But there's something about her writing that does really bring forth issues of gender that are very particular and that way totally not connected to Kafka. And yet they are social. They, and they, it's very much about alienation. Uh, there are the, absolutely, there's a lot of alienation. I mean, absolutely. I mean, this woman out in the sea like that, I mean, what, who could be more alienated? You know? right. Or the so, perspective of a child, right. especially a young girl in, in right. the adult world. Yeah. He aims his arrows at like his parents and his father. Do you think she does the same thing uh, in terms of the negativity towards the way she's brought up? But, but he's so direct. No, it's very true. And uh, I mean, she does. A, 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 often her characters are she are the, the servants that work in this that work in the house that she lived in because she came from a wealthy family. And 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 as and often what happened in those cases that the children are closer to the people working for the family than the family itself, you know, and, and so that, yeah, that also is Yeah, a, and is quite a, a few of the adults yeah. in the stories are not to be trusted. Or they're yeah. absent. Or, you know, or they're absent. Um, yeah. so in the, yeah. Both of the yeah. stories yeah. that we read, the right. children, the young girls are, are waiting for right. parents or parental figures to right. arrive. And, 
you know, caught preferring being alone. Right. I mean, the way she talks about this father here, for example, in that story, mm -hmm. a strange visit, right? Mm -hmm. so it's, has there been any, uh, you know, theorizing in the, the criticism out there that uh, Elena Ferrante was perhaps influenced by her? Well, I, I mean, there's the the, du the um, feminine double, the young girls mirroring one another, the kind complexity of, the quotation, of that. Like, that this, like, um, I don't know. But it wouldn't surprise me. She was. I know that she was very close friends with Calvino. As a matter of fact, there's a very nice quote here mm -hmm. from Calvino in the books that uh, that. Uh, uh, I mean, you were mentioning him, uh, Italian. What is that wonderful quote? Well, I'll, I'll look. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's oh, it's on the last page. I don't know of any other writer. That's right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, so I don't know of any other writer who better expresses the magic inside everyday rituals, the forbidden or hidden face that our mirrors don't show us. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. that's uh, you know, she's. Um, but no, it's very possible that Elena Ferrante. Who isn't Elena Ferrante? She differs quite a bit, like from. The, I was just thinking, could you compare her to Sylvia Plath and any of the confessional writers? She doesn't really, uh, in a way, she uses the personal eye. She doesn't. She somehow doesn't drown as rapidly as Plath does in her in well, the writing, and you know, the image was so sustained. Except for a few poems, like in the negative. Well, only two of the 28 stories in Forgotten Journey were written in the first person. Um, that predominantly, she's playing with the third person. So I think there's not quite yeah, the same. There's a distance. Yeah. But it's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned Sylvia Plath because she was very close with Alejandro Pizarni, who was kind of the Sylvia Plath of Argentina and who also did commit suicide. Um, they had, uh, and, and Alejandro was actually very obsessed with her. Uh, with with Sylvina. With Sylvina, yeah. So, um, in what so way obsessed with the writing? Well, as in, 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 in all ways. In all ways. In all ways. In all ways. <laughs> so there, there's an interesting connection there. That's an interesting thing. The, the, well, the Sylvia Plath connection is apparent in the way the book cover, mm -hmm. where she covers her face. She doesn't yeah. want her face to be seen. It's mm -hmm. very interesting. That is that Sylvia is Plath. There. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Mm. 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 Any other questions? Mm -hmm. I think we should free them from their seats. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.